Would you say your association with them kind of deterred your original path towards kind of being a punk, like you said before, and now you had a little bit more structure and purpose? Well, I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) I I like the uh, connection you're trying to make there, Bryce, but the wakeboarding community is a bunch of rebels. They're a bunch of punks. These dudes... Uh, yeah, they're, they don't they don't live a very uh, healthy lifestyle, okay. I should say. Maybe now they do, but back then the mentality was party, party, rage, rage, let's go wakeboard, shred the gnar. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Invictus Mindset Podcast. I'm super excited today. I have an incredible guest. Visiting sexy and sunny Southern California, Woo-hoo. all the way from Raleigh, North Carolina, the fittest one-armed man in the world, Logan Aldrich. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, man. Long way from home. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> Welcome to San Diego. We're very fortunate. It's super sunny right now. I hope you're soaking up every bit of that. Absolutely. Popping the top everywhere I go. Yes. Shirts off. That's amazing. <laughs> You have an incredible story. You've motivated and inspired so many people around the globe with this incredible story. You're kind of known to people from the outskirts as the fittest one-armed man in the world. That obviously doesn't define who you are as a man or as a human being. Correct. And I'd love to dive into a little bit of your story. And so obviously you're from Raleigh, North Carolina. You know, what, what was your childhood and your upbringing like? Yeah, I, I love explaining that part of Logan because uh-huh. I think who I am now is vastly different yeah. than that Logan. Uh, but yeah, man, born and raised in Raleigh. My family's all from North Carolina, super fortunate and blessed to grow up around my family. Grandparents, aunt and uncles, cousins lived close. I mean, literally lived on the same property. We have kind of a, a horse farm growing up oh, in Raleigh. Wow. So yeah, to, out of my house to the right was my grandparents' house. To the left was my aunt and uncle and oh, my wow. cousins. So it was always, you were always around family growing up. That's amazing. How important is family to the story of Logan Aldrich? Oh, it's critical. It's critical. Uh, I mean, it's, it's definitely the reason why I had the attitude and perspective I did when my accident occurred. Of course. Uh, it's a support system. Yeah. It's crucial. Uh, but, you know, growing up as a young kid, I have an older brother, mm-hmm. two years older than me. Are you the youngest? I'm the youngest. Oh, you and me both. So we yeah, both know man. how to poke the bear. That's right. That's, that's right. That's amazing. That's we like, got tough skin too. Yes, you know, do. that older brother beats you up a little For bit. For sure. <laughs> Did you have the same love. psychology growing up where if you felt like you could beat your brother, you could beat anybody yeah. in the world? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. And his friends uh, didn't hold back either. For they, sure. They were, they were rough on me. But that was great. That was awesome. Uh, but yeah, growing up, I was uh, always outside. I was the kid that could not sit at the dinner table to finish dinner. I'd say, all right, mom, have I eaten enough? Can I go back outside? <laughs> like I was, I, and it was very fortunate where we lived. We had a lot of woods and a lot of nature around us. And so I spent time in that environment. And I'm um, sure spending time in the outdoors helped ingrain really great foundational values in your life for sure. I think so. I think so. And I haven't really ever thought of it that way, but like, I think, uh, it was a much better option than being in front of a screen yeah. uh, being indoors often. My brother introduced me to a lot of things outdoors, but he wasn't ever as passionate or into them as I was. Okay. Uh, him and I now, uh, he's, he's very much involved in the video game industry. Mm-hmm. He actually works for Epic Games. He's oh, like wow. one of the 12 people that makes Fortnite. Holy moly. Yeah, man. He's actually... A, for all you gamers out he's there, He's actually a huge that. deal. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable we'll to, have to, to have realize him on the podcast my soon. bro yeah, is like the creator behind... One of the creators behind Fortnite. It's, uh, that's it's super, pretty super remarkable. Awesome. And their headquarters is right outside of Raleigh. So he lives in Raleigh as well. Oh, that's wife. amazing. So yeah. very close to your family. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
But as you can tell, or if anyone knows anything about me, I am not into video games. <laughs> I can, and it's not because I have one arm. I can play video games well with one hand, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, in college, you know, we all had our Call of Duty days. Oh, yeah. And I definitely spent some time uh, with a positive uh, KDR in Call of Duty. Oh, there so you go. Did you ever I'm play any Guitar good. Hero? Guitar Hero, I did. Yeah, I used my little nub to, to yeah. do, the, do the little uh, the chord there. That was fun, but harder. I, I enjoyed uh, the shooter shooter games. For sure. But yeah, I mean, anyways, um, growing up, I, I played a lot of sports. I was really into extreme sports. Okay. I loved skateboarding, wakeboarding, surfing, snowboarding, anything on a board. Yeah. Anything that was uh, kind of that extreme mentality, yeah, like yeah, X yeah. Games stuff. And that really kind of is the crowd I was drawn to at a young age. I was definitely like a punk of a kid. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I was... Um, not necessarily making the best decisions, getting into mischievous things that were available, either roughhousing with friends or um, just doing things that might not be the smartest thing as a young kid. Yeah. Uh, never anything like horribly violent or, or illegal, but just uh, being a bit of a rebel, yeah. uh, you know, a punk of, of a kid and a yeah. little bit of a grom. You know, I spent a lot of time at the beach just kind of surfing and chugging Mountain Dew and just being, being oh, a little... Oh, Mountain Dew. I forgot that <laughs> yeah, from back man. in the day. Oh, my gosh. That was the good stuff. It is embarrassing to say, but... Like, that's what I mean. Like at 10, 11 years old, my friends and I, we would late at night, we'd go get a 12 pack of Dr. Pepper mm-hmm. and beer bong Dr. Pepper. Oh, yes. Because we thought we were so badass. <laughs> it is unreal to think about the, how much I was trashing my body back yeah, then. Yeah, for sure. <sighs> Dr. Come Pepper and Mountain Dew sponsor this man. Come a long way, <laughs> man. Come a long way. Haven't touched that stuff in a long time. But yeah, so I, I played a lot of sports, played team sports, mm-hmm. played football, played soccer. Uh, baseball and lacrosse. I fell in love with lacrosse around mm-hmm. like third grade and uh, was left-handed. So I was a lefty on the field and yeah. it was a valued position. And I, and I loved that sport. Growing up, we got a lake house mm-hmm. at Lake Gaston, which is right on the North Carolina, Virginia border. Okay. And that was like eight, nine years old. And when we got that lake house, the 1999 wakeboarding world champion lived on that lake. His name was Michael Weddington. And I really didn't know much about wakeboarding at all uh, once we got the lake house. But Standing on the dock, once we finally got the house, you know, checking out boats going by and what's going on, I saw this guy wakeboarding, and I saw him, like, jump in the wake and doing spins and flips, and I mean, I was just in awe. My jaw dropped, literally at the moment, my jaw dropped, and I was like, I have to learn how to do that. I was, oh, yeah. I was fascinated by it. I had no idea that's what wakeboarding was. Mm-hmm. And so I quickly got lessons from him, got a board, we got a wakeboard boat. Uh, I was all into wakeboarding and loved riding, not just for fun. Like I really wanted to become him. I wanted to be this professional wakeboarder. Like that was my calling. So I he was, it was your perfect. first like mentor to really look up to and strive to be. Yeah, him. man. Absolutely. Wanted to emulate yeah, everything absolutely. that he did. Him and another pro on the lake, Adam Fields. They were two guys that uh, I idolized. Absolutely. And took lessons from and took everything they said to heart and really treated wakeboarding as such, like as this sport where you could be a professional in it. Did you say your association with them kind of deterred your original path towards kind of being a punk, like you said before, and now you had a little bit more structure and purpose? Well, I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) I I like the uh, connection you're trying to make there, Bryce, but the wakeboarding community is a bunch of rebels. They're a bunch of punks. These dudes... 
Uh, yeah, they're, they, don't, they don't live a very uh, healthy lifestyle, okay. I should say. Maybe now they do, but back then the mentality was party, party, rage, rage, let's go wakeboard, shred the gnar. Like that was the mentality. Uh, that still and I was like drawn a pretty to adventurous that. life. I was drawn to that. So I started riding with the guys. They're great guys. They're by no means negative impressions on me. Uh, they're great role models, but you know that's the, that's the extreme sport environment. That yeah. was kind of the mentality. But regardless of all that, I just wanted to be a professional wakeboarder. I wanted to follow in their footsteps. So my parents were recreational skiers, water skiers. They're pretty good at it, but nice. didn't do it as a career or anything. They have their jobs. But like, I thought this is uh, an opportunity for me. We have the lake. We have all this. So I spent day in, day out riding, trying to perfect tricks, refine movement, and do all this on the board. So I took it pretty seriously at a pretty young age. I spent my time every moment at the lake. If I wasn't in Raleigh in school, I was at the lake wakeboarding or at the beach surfing but would most of the time be at the lake wakeboarding. Yeah. So at age 13, we were wakeboarding a typical day. It was actually a Saturday. I like an evening set right before the sun went down because that's when the water kind of calms down. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're familiar with wakeboard boats, there's a tower that the rope connects to yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of above the middle of the boat. So I had the rope connected to the tower, obviously. We just finished riding. And a guy who lives about five docks down from me was in the water finishing his last set. I was on the boat, my mom, my dad, and we pulled in his dock to drop him off. So he swam, you know, he stopped riding, swam over to his dock, threw him his backpack and stuff. said, Hey man, see you in the morning for the AM sesh. Uh, and he started to walk away. And then it was like, since we we're only five docks away from mine, you know, maybe hundred yards or so, mm-hmm. we were just, just putting along, you know, the boat just in gear, just cruising. Yep. And at this time it was like, all right, Logan, clean up the boat. This is my responsibility. So I was, you know, putting away life jackets and towels and pulling in the rope. Mm-hmm. So when I went to pull in the rope, no, because we had just dropped him off and he was riding and when we pushed off the dock, I think we just, we backed up a little bit over some of the rope that was behind the boat yeah. and really not paying too much attention and just putting along. When I went to pull in the rope, I used that technique that we might use with an extension cord. Yeah. Yep. Where we, yeah, you kind of put that arm at 90 degrees and you put the rope or the cable over the thumb under the elbow, kind of yeah, making yeah, yeah. that perfect circle yep. loop. Done it many times um, exactly. with like Christmas lights or, of or different, different rope or extension exactly. cords. So I had my left arm like that and had about two loops around my left arm like that with the, you know, the end still being connected to the tower. Yep. I looked back and noticed that the rope, a part of the rope had drifted a little bit underneath the back platform. Mm-hmm. And on wakeboard boats, if listeners are familiar, it's, you know, there's not a motor right in the back. The motor is, it's an inboard motor and it's up underneath the boat. So actually seeing that rope having drifted underneath the back platform wasn't really that alarming in the moment. It was just like, oh shoot, it might be caught on the wedge or it might be caught on um, the rudder or something back there, but, but not really thinking that it might be way up underneath mm-hmm. uh, where the propeller is. Yeah. So I just, with those two loops around my arm, I just kind of nonchalantly turn to my dad and say, hey dad, uh, rope's underneath the boat. And it happens sometimes. You just jump under there and untangle it from wherever it's caught on. But in that moment, when I turned to him and told him that, he went to turn off the boat just for you know safety precautions to yeah. jump in and fix it. And right when he went to go turn it off, it was that split second between me noticing it and telling him mm-hmm. that the propeller did catch the rope. Now, just to paint a clear picture, uh, a wakeboard rope is very thin and has no elasticity. Mm-hmm. It's actually meant to be just basically like a cable. Yeah. Uh, and this specific one was coated in plastic and very thin. So it really acted like a cable. Mm-hmm. So when I'm holding it with those two loops around my arm and then it gets caught in the propeller there, the speed at which that propeller is spinning, even just idling forward, is enough to 
coil that rope around that propeller and yeah. tangle it in there. And when it did, you know, the only thing between that and the tower was the two loops around my arm. Yeah. So when that happened, it basically just um, cinched down. It slipped off my thumb yep. and cinched down above the elbow, basically oh, wow. creating a super fast, tight tourniquet. Yeah. Uh, and that tourniquet was so forceful. Like there was so much more pressure than I could have ever imagined. Of course. That it just it just cut through everything like it was butter. I mean, oh my gosh. Not not the bone. Like I want to I want to paint a clear picture because there's some interpretation that kind of gets lost here. But like it didn't rip my arm off by any means. Not mm -hmm. to get too graphic, but yep. it just it literally looked like it just had cinched down through skin and muscle and all of that stuff to the bone. So it looked like the rope was just coming in on one side of my inner arm and yeah. just coming out the outside of my arm. Oh my gosh. So it was wild. And, uh, I was just standing there. felt a little jerk still standing on the boat a after that happened. My arms just kind of like laying out in front of me, mm -hmm. um, turn to, you know, my parents on the boat and my mother immediately looks at my dad and says, Wesley, his arm. And so he just steps over. I mean, he's, you know, four feet from me. And begins to unwind the rope. And as soon as he does that, it was an intense realization that something really bad had just happened. And yeah. I say that because the amount of blood, man. Oh, my. The amount of blood. Because the artery was immediately severed. We have an artery that pumps into our left arm straight out of our heart. Yep. And that artery was immediately severed. So when he unwound that rope, the pressure was released. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like, oh, wow, I'm bleeding a lot. It was wild it was like you know you've seen the movie 300 where yep. there's just blood flying everywhere yep. it literally was like that it was a 24 foot boat that was white yep and in the f 10 15 seconds that he undid the rope before putting a tourniquet on it the whole boat was covered in blood oh my I mean, gosh it was unbelievable in that moment what is going through your mind so that's a great question. You know, 13-year-old, scrawny little kid looking forward to having a dinner and waking up Sunday morning and hitting the AM session, three, two, one, boom, that happens. I am, in my mind, I'm like, oh, wow, this is an incredible nightmare. I'm having such a realistic dream. This is fascinating. And that's, that's how I interpreted it. Mm -hmm. My friend is walking up the driveway. My mom is screaming at him, call the ambulance. You know, all these things are unfolding in split seconds. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, no way, no way, no way. There's no way this is happening. No way this is what's going on right now. Yeah. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, yeah, of course. This is just a crazy dream. You know, you have these vivid dreams all the time. This yeah. is just a wild dream. And so as we putt closer to the dock, the chaos is continuing to ensue. Uh, parents are freaking out. My dad has, you know, at that moment, once he unwound the rope, he immediately ripped his shirt off, wrapped it around, pulled it as tight as he could. Had he not done that, I'd have bled out in two minutes. Yeah. I'd have been dead on the spot for, for sure. sure. So he did that. We get to the dock. We're in the middle of nowhere at this lake where we live on the, on the water. It's kind of far from everything, but we didn't know what to do. We didn't know where to go. So we call an ambulance or my, my friend had already called the ambulance. And it was already on its way. And I decided you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But in the moment, I wanted to wait. You know, I wanted to sit there and wait. We shouldn't have done that. We should have just gotten in the car and driven. But as my dad was carrying me off the boat, I said, Dad, just bring me to my room. Bring me to my bedroom. I'll see myself. And then I'll wake up from this nightmare. And, you know, that that's, that's a t I can't imagine. That's a tough situation for a parent to be in. Of course. And uh, he realized, though, that that would bring some closure or some realization to the severity of this situation, the reality of it. So he did. He brought me up there. And showed me my bed. That's when I, you know, said, oh, took a deep breath and said, okay, this is, this is really happening. And in that moment, I just, I just accepted the reality. 
uh, started at to 13 years to, old. You were able to accept it. At I just, that moment. at that moment I said, wow, this is, this is actually happening. What is about to happen? Like, what is, am I about to die yeah. or am, is my arm about to get chopped off or am I about to have a really cool scar around my arm that I'll be able to tell all my friends about when mm-hmm. I start school, eighth grade, uh, in the fall. You know, all these, those immediately, those are the thoughts going through my head. Yeah. So we sit there and wait for this ambulance. This ambulance takes a little bit over an hour to get there. Oh my which, gosh. Yeah. That's hindsight. At that point was, were you guys able to kind of stop the blood? Obviously you're in your home, you're up at, at your bed. Did you guys tie something else on or tape it or? He just, uh, we just, that tourniquet, that shirt he put on, um, he tied it so tight. The bleeding for the most part, at least from how we could see had stopped or he had been able to stop it. Uh Um, I think he then put another smaller uh, string above that Uh to stop circulation as well. But it was, it was wild for me because I kept feeling it was immediately the nerves and all that were gone. So I kept feeling that my arm was laying like off to my side, Uh like my hand was open and it was in my lap. And I kept saying like, what's, what's in my lap? And my dad was like, that's your arm. And, you know, I started to notice it was going black and blue. Yeah. It was losing all its circulation. And I kept thinking, I was trying to move it. You know, I was trying to flex my hand, open and close my hand. Nothing was happening. I was like, yeah. that is so bizarre. That is yeah. so strange. And then an hour later, the ambulance gets there. It's some volunteers in the ambulance. I mean, it's a volunteer EMS crew because uh, it's a Saturday and we're in kind of very, very small town, middle mm-hmm. of nowhere. They put me in the ambulance. My mom gets in with me. We're going to this local community hospital. And on the way is when I start to verbalize like what I'm thinking to my mom. And uh, all I asked her was, mom, what if, what if I lose my arm and you know as a mother she's trying to compartmentalize and deal with the situation and comfort me but also kind of put things into perspective in the moment and without skipping a beat she just looked at me and said logan it's just an arm and she didn't say it in like a way to belittle or it was just i think more of a way for her to help herself not freak out yeah and realize like logan let's just you're alive right now do, let's do just you focus recognize on that. that now or did you recognize that in the moment oh it did not at all recognize it in the moment okay. it's taken this storytelling and looking back at the at the experience to realize that that absolutely that moment though right there was the most profound and impactful moment for me in my perception of the accident and how my attitude and recovery would go it was dictated in those words for sure absolutely it's so powerful that. logan is just an arm it's just an arm and that's why, like, now today you see I, I hashtag that all the time. Like, that's my go-to saying. I speak upon it because all it really does is just puts words in place that makes you recognize the abundance in your life. Absolutely. So, okay, I have life. Great. I have another arm. Great. It's just an arm. So in that moment, yeah, she said those words. And that was still very concerning, but it still resonated immediately. I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, if that does happen, it is just one arm. I have another one. But I was also left-handed, so it was a big deal. It was yeah, this left sure. arm strong was side. potentially going to go. Uh, so long story short, or, or I could talk about this, just this experience itself for an hour, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but we get to this local hospital. They're not a trauma level one trauma hospital, so they call UNC and Duke Children's Hospital. UNC says, we've got a helicopter, our Tar Heel One helicopters in the air right now on its way to these coordinates. Put them back in the ambulance, go to these coordinates. So I get back in the ambulance, we go like literally to a cornfield and they open up the doors and they're pulling me out on the stretcher and I see this badass chopper come in, swoop around and land. Wow. And I looked at the paramedics and I grinned. I said, 
that's for me. And they said, yeah, that's for you, Logan. I said, this is badass. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> I was, yeah, man. I really did. I was like smiling in this moment. I was like, I cannot believe I'm about Only to do this. Only thing missing was thing. a Mountain Dew. Yeah. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> oh, gosh. But I get in and we get to UNC Children's Hospital. My parents had to drive there, you know, and they're ripping off clothes, asking me all these questions, surrounded by all these doctors and uh, immediately going to surgery. I was in the hospital for almost three weeks because they wanted to reattach, you know, we wanted to save it. So for sure. they tried getting blood flow. By the time we were finally in that surgery where they're getting the blood flow back into the arm, we waited another day or two because we were very hopeful that these muscles would regenerate. They would take the blood and start pumping again so the arm swelled up huge and we were massaging it we kept doing ultrasounds on it trying to listen and we're just so hopeful that it would accept and take this blood and rehabilitate yep after a couple days went back in for a surgery for the doctors just to kind of like check out the muscles what was going on and that's when they confirmed that they were completely dead Uh, and if we kept waiting around with this you know wishful thinking uh, gangrene could set in you know bacteria all that stuff so we needed to make the decision and the decision was to amputate the left arm above the elbow and being left-handed it was a, a tough decision for my parents to make i came out of surgery you know the doctor was standing there with my brother my mom and dad around they're all crying my the doctor included which was you know, a huge part of the process and how we felt like this hospital was family. Yeah. I mean, these doctors were... They felt what you were feeling. Yeah, it was incredible. It was really incredible. And uh, they told me, I said, Logan, unfortunately, we're going to have to amputate your left arm. And I think it's so funny that this is what I thought about. But my first thought, my very, as soon as they said that, was how am I going to play lacrosse? Oh, wow. It was wild that that's, that's, I don't know why that's where my head went first. That's um, really, really special considering the magnitude of what was going on in that moment. Yeah. It wasn't, oh man, how am I going to look with one? It, and it wasn't, I'm never going to play lacrosse. It was lit in my head. It was, okay, how will I do that now? What I think is so fascinating about that is I think one of the biggest challenges for people is when they have their freedoms taken away. Yeah. You know, and right there, lacrosse, you know, and, and, wakeboarding were freedoms for you of course and so immediately your headspace went towards you know how am i going to play lacrosse yeah and then you know and then that trickles into everything else how am i going to do this how will i do this how will i do this but never in my mind and i don't know why this is i just i don't know if it's mentality or i didn't i couldn't accept the idea of just not being able to do something but i never in my mind did i say oh i can't do that now or i won't ever be able to do this again it was just like how growth mindset is so important. Yeah, it was just thinking how I, it will be different, but how I wanted to immediately start processing how that process just, just may from look. a mentality standpoint. That is so huge. Yeah, you know, moving forward, and you know, obviously, we'll get into some of the things you're up to now. But at 13 years old, to have you know your left arm, your strong side taken away so fast in a moment, and you know, s- such a panorama view of just so much going on in a short amount of time, and you were thinking, okay, I'm not gonna lose my freedom. I'm just gonna have to do it a little different. Exactly. That is amazing. Exactly. Uh, for for those of you listening, like whatever challenges you're faced with, like. Take this growth mindset with you, you know, figure out how to go over, under, or around. Don't feel like you have to quit. I want to get back to the story right there, but there's something I want to say that I think really uh, explains that perspective or that mindset well. Uh And I've heard it from someone else, and I'm sorry I don't remember the source, but uh, it's just a great way to look at life and the way we look at mindset. Life can either happen to you, you know, that's woe is me, oh my gosh, I can't believe... Oh my God, this traffic today is ruining your day. That's Mm -hmm. life happening to you. 
life can happen for you. And that's, you know, oh my gosh, look at me. I'm number one. I'm the best. This is awesome. Everything's great. And you know, you, a lot of um, ego, egotistical stuff starts to happen there. Yep. Or life can happen through you. Oh, wow. And I think I decided, I don't know how, but I think I decided in that moment that life was going to be different, but it was going to be still lived by me. Absolutely. Uh, I, I was going to still have a, a life that I wanted to share with people. Yeah. You know, it wasn't going to be woe is me. It wasn't going to be, I'm going to be the one arm guy who does everything in this world. But it was like, all right, I'm going to do things differently, but I'm going to do all the things that I would want to do in this life. And life can come through me in a different way than I had envisioned you know, with two arms, but it Man, still can come is, through me. That is very powerful. For, for, for those of you not able to see us right now, like the storytelling and like he's giving me goosebumps as, oh, he's, as he's saying some of these things. I think that's such a powerful piece. And looking you know, there, at there's so many people in the world that have the poor me mindset. Of course. And, yeah. um, you know, the fact that you have, you know, a challenging set of cards dealt your way and you're playing them to the best of your ability and allowing life to, to funnel through you is, is such an amazing statement. I just think that's uh, it's so fulfilling when you look at life that way. Yeah. It's amazing. And when you look at, you know, the overall goal of life, like a lot of people talk about the pursuit of happiness. Right. It's not always the pursuit of happiness. It's the pursuit of fulfillment. Exactly. And, you know, you're serving the world and using, you know, challenging circumstances to allow life to flow through you. And, you know, I want to jump back into the story. And so, you know, your your family and the doctors, they're kind of crying after sharing the news. You needed yes. to amputate your arm. And let's dive back in right yeah. there. Yeah. So they, they amputate the arm. Uh, at this point, you know, my... My support network, my family and friends were abundant. It was incredible. Like the entire ICU waiting room was a party because wow. it was all these people wanting to see Logan. And they had, you know, they had this rule like two people can come in at a time. This crew was like, all right, forget that rule. We're yeah. all going in there. Uh, so like the doctors and nurses were a bit stressed out because we literally took over the ICU. Wow. Uh, but that was, that was huge, man. That's, that's a critical part of the recovery. But in that moment, something that, and it all came from the best intention from every visitor that I had, but everyone was sorry. Everyone was really, really sorry. And I didn't like that. And it made, it made total sense. But in my mind, I was like, it's okay. My biggest fear was that people were going to see Logan as this disabled, impaired individual mm -hmm. that had two arms and he's no longer the Logan he used to be. Uh, that was my biggest fear. So I made sure to exude happiness, confidence right from the get-go, yeah. joking around, friends in the hospital. Like my brother was like, my brother's a, a jokester and he had like filled up one of those urine cups with apple juice and was walking around <laughs> drinking it and nurses were freaking out <laughs> and we were having like wheelchair battles. We were in wheelchairs and you know, I'm in here spinning circles trying to do it and like oh, my friends cool. are trying to do wheelies in them. Like we were being a bit chaotic in the hospital, but that was important because I needed to remind my friends and my family members that I was the same Logan and Logan's going to try to do the things that he did before and we'll figure out if he can or can't, but mm -hmm. Logan has to go try to do them on his own. Uh, and that was very important. And, you know, being left-handed, I immediately started trying to write the alphabet while I was in the hospital. Oh, that's so cool. And it looked like chicken scratch, but I just wanted to try. <laughs> that's so amazing. It was my mom's birthday in the hospital, so I tried writing her a letter. But after that, we um, got out of the hospital. I went back to the house and immediately jumped into running and training and fitness uh, because I knew, you know, if I'm going to have one arm and try to do the things I did before, I'm going to need to be as athletically capable as possible. Did anybody push you in that direction or did you have any like special conversations that helped give you a little bit of motivation to pursue those things? 
Yeah, you know, I try to identify where that came from, where where that became, why that became a priority for me. My influence circle were individuals. The people I idolized were athletes. They were people that were very successful in their sport or and and I just I found myself saying, why can't I still be that way with one arm? There's no reason not to be that way. I just knew in the moment that I didn't necessarily have someone to look up to who had been in my shoes yet so and gonna, that it was going to take a lot of hard path. work. Yeah, yeah. I just, I knew it would be different. I knew it would be different than the path that others had gone on, but there was no thought of, well, you, that can't be done. Yeah. I refused to accept that. I was okay with failing. Like, mm-hmm. and there's plenty of things that I could not do, but I had to try first. Um, it just makes you such a unique individual. The fact that, you know, failure was not something that even crossed your brain. Well, you know, I think I had a, I think I had an experience and an example I like to share about expectations that were set on me and, and what would have happened if I would have accepted them, uh, is that with writing, you know, I was left-handed. So I had, I went to an incredible school, first grade through 12th grade, private school in Raleigh, Ravenscroft and an awesome, awesome school. And I had teachers coming in to visit me while I was in the hospital. And, you know, that, that was over the summer and I was going into eighth grade and going into eighth grade, you know, all these teachers were telling me, Logan, we'll get you a lap. And this is 2004, you know, and this is before there's laptops and, yeah. and classrooms and stuff. Uh-huh. And they're like, Logan, we'll get you a laptop. We'll have note takers for you in every class. Like, don't worry. We'll make sure we accommodate you appropriately so that you feel like everything's okay. And the doctors were telling my parents that they were trying to prepare my parents that I, I might really struggle with coordination with my right hand. And an example they were giving was writing. They're like, writing may be very difficult for Logan. He may want to default to learning how to type with one hand on a keyboard. And in my mind, that means they're telling my parents that I can't learn to write with my right hand. And as soon as that is told to me, this sort of kind of like rebel mentality, I was, just I was about like, to say that. okay, I'm going to write then. I'm yeah. definitely going to write. Tell me I can't. Watch me. Yeah, exactly. And it was, no, it was not to spite them, but it was just like, all right, challenge accepted. And so I started writing the alphabet and I tried writing my mom a birthday card because it was her birthday in the hospital, you know, and that meant a lot to her uh, just because of the significance of being told you probably won't do this and just doing it, trying to figure it out. Was there any specific activity of daily living like writing or brushing your teeth or using the restroom that was incredibly frustrating? Oh my gosh. Like even putting on a shirt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cutting fingernails. Yeah. That's pretty, pretty difficult. Absolutely. Tying shoes. But you know, I was so fortunate. I had... A family friend in the Raleigh area who lost his arm, his whole shoulder, entire arm due to cancer. Oh, wow. I'd known him growing up, known of him growing up, and he caught wind of the story while I was in the hospital. He came in while I was in the hospital. Uh, and that was actually, that was, you know, that was a very important moment because he came in and, and <laughs> this guy was pretty blunt in the sense that he came in and was like, hey, Logan, you got one arm now, man. And uh, there's some things you're going to need to figure out, like how to put on your clothes. And he was wearing a button up and slacks. And he was like undoing his belt and unbuttoning his pants. And I was like, whoa, man, I'm not trying to. (laughs) I felt like he was crossing the line really quickly. And uh, he was like, no, no, no. I need to, I want to show you how, like how I would button these pants with one hand, how I put the belt on, how I button up the shirt. And he did. He showed me those things and he was wearing some shoes with laces. So he untied his shoe and he showed me how he ties his shoes. And what I thought was fascinating is that like he showed me that one time and I never forgot it. My brain was such a sponge and I was drugged up. Like I was out of it. Yeah. But something about my brain said, you need to hone in on everything this man is telling you right now because this is critical Just information on how you're going to live your life. Uh, and after he showed me that, how to tie my shoes, like that's 
It's it, I clicked wow. immediately. Would you would you say that when something is taken away from the body, that other parts of the body kind of chip in and kind of help out a little bit more? Absolutely, absolutely. That's fascinating. One time, and you yeah. just memorized it and practiced it, and then it became part right. of your daily routine. Right, and I think that's uh, you know I think that's the case for the certain individuals with the right mindset. They become you become more because I'm missing a limb, a task like. I don't know, um, swinging a golf club, mm-hmm. you know, it already is a huge challenge to do with one arm, but because I'm going to attempt to do it with one arm, I'm attempting to achieve mediocrity, but you have to be a perfectionist in the progression to being mediocre mm-hmm. on the able body perspective to do it with one arm. So like the mindset of doing things one-handed or one-legged or in a wheelchair, whatever it may be, that with an impairment that is different than an able body, mm-hmm. you have to be this over-analytical perfectionist to try to accomplish it in order just to get you to the level playing field, For if sure. you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Like it takes a lot of focus and discipline just to do something that seems very lackadaisically average for an able-bodied person. Oh, yeah. Would you Um, argue, so Tony Robbins always says, when you exchange expectation for appreciation, your world changes forever. Exactly. And when you look at, you know, the history of sport, you know, we all can look at, you know, Michael Jordan's super successful game when he was incredibly sick. You know, obviously he's not thinking about trying to have an incredible game. He's thinking, man, I'm sick. I don't feel good. I'm, I'm lucky to be here. Let me help serve my team. Would you say a lot of your life is just full of gratitude because of the challenging experience you faced? Oh, without a doubt, man. You hit the nail on the head. And that's perfect what I was going to say from that experience with writing. What my eyes were opened up to is expectations Mm -hmm. and what they mean and the power they can have on people. People that they're placed on and the individuals placing them on others or ourselves. And through that experience and many others, uh, and it's something I've talked about for the past, gosh, 12 years in motivational speeches and mindset talks and things like that. But I've come to define expectations as prejudgments that we place on ourselves and one another that typically, from my experience, limit potential. Yes. So with that being said, and with a quote from Michael Jordan saying, if we accept the expectations of others, especially the negative ones, we'll never change the outcome. Mm-hmm. It makes perfect sense that had I said has I accepted the expectation of, all right, Logan, yeah, probably not going to write again. All right, that's fine. I'll just use a keyboard. All right, forget writing. It's just not something I'm going to do. I just to this day, I would just say, all right, I'm just not a writer. I don't write. I don't write things out with my hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that could have been an expectation I accept. But I would have never had the opportunity to discover if I can write or not. And there are countless examples of that in my life and in everyone's life that we can identify that exact scenario. Yeah. And that was very powerful for me to realize. And a message that I can I started to generate was beyond expectations. Go beyond expectations. Oh, that's amazing. I like and that. Beyond expectations, abbreviated, is the BE. Uh, and BE to me meant like when I would say be or be yourself, it would mean like be the best version of yourself in a way that you're not holding yourself to a standard of someone else. Yeah. It's not to an expectation of someone else. And uh, it, it doesn't mean be a perfectionist. It doesn't mean be an overachiever. But it means do little things extremely intentionally like do everything that you're doing with extreme intention and if you go beyond if you do a little bit more than what someone expects of you or than you even expected of yourself you're going to achieve a level that most don't tap into and i think that's the difference between the super high achievers we we call it work ethic we call it you know discipline or all these different things 
But I think that's what it comes down to. It comes down to this constant curiosity for what could be a little bit better, what could be a little bit further. And whether that's in human potential physically, whether it's in spiritually or mentally, emotionally, like where can we go? How, how much can we grow? Uh, we're never there. We never reach it. So beyond expectations means that. It's like always be seeking for something a little bit further than what you thought was possible. Like and that. more often than not, you're going to realize that more is possible than you thought. Yeah. I can align with you on so many levels here. I mean, when you listen to David Goggins, he talks about the 40% rule. Exactly. When you think you've hit that top end ceiling of your potential, you typically have 40% more. That 40% is a lot. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And that kind of, it's a great time to transition into my experience into CrossFit, into yeah. fitness. And what I did from, from, you know, the accident and went on to play lacrosse in high school and was captain and, and all state junior and senior year and went on to college and played club and weightlifted with friends and did all the things that I would have tried to do with two arms. Mm-hmm. I continued wakeboarding. I went back to wakeboarding and I competed on the international level in the circuit and was an wow. amateur professional wakeboarder. Why am I so bad at wakeboarding? So- <laughs> <then>? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But as you can imagine, you know, to go back to wakeboarding with one arm, it was immediately apparent that this one arm had has to be freaking superhuman. Oh, yeah. Grip strength and endurance and stamina. Like, it's got to be through the roof. So I literally spent every moment, even still in the hospital, when I was in the hospital, I had those Chinese uh, meditation balls. Uh-huh. Started working on just agility, dexterity with the hand. Wow. Immediately. I had a grip trainer, was immediately squeezing that in the hospital. Got out, jumped right into football summer camp training. I actually jumped into fitness too early and, and had my bone break through the muscle. Oh, And wow. I had to go back to the hospital and get more bone removed. Oh, man. And then I was skateboarding after, and I fell on my, my little stump here and mm-hmm. snapped the humerus snapped oh, nice. my, my that's not humorous bones. yeah it was not trust me it was not funny right the day before i was supposed to get a prosthetic so oh, man. i couldn't get a prosthetic for like another six months but i found out quickly that i loved physical activity yeah. now, obviously you know before i did as well but afterwards i knew it was important for me to try to do the things i did before and um after going to college and graduating and getting in you know following the typical model I got a great job, very fortunate to get a great job back in Raleigh for an awesome IT company and went back to work there uh, and quickly realized that, that was not for me, that environment and the climbing the corporate Isn't ladder. Isn't that so fascinating how we, we, we get involved in things and so often it's you figure out what you don't want. Exactly. Yeah. It was yeah. phenomenal. No, not a bad experience at all, but yeah. it's just, it's not me. Yeah. It was not me at all. And I was fascinated and still am with 3D printing, additive okay. manufacturing. You know, I went through the experience of getting a prosthetic and having one and, and, real, and coming to the realization that for an individual above elbow amputee, a prosthetic is a training wheel. Mm-hmm. It's meant to build up encouragement for you to realize you can do it with one arm, really, in my opinion. Yeah. Different story for leg amputees, obviously. Different story for below elbow amputees, but mm-hmm. that was my perspective. But through the process, I was fascinated with how archaic the fitting and the technology of the socket for the prosthetic was Mm -hmm. the advancements we've made with the microprocessor knees and all the gadgets and the the bionic hands are remarkable, but we've done a pretty poor job at innovating how sockets fit, how the residual limb of the individual fits onto the artificial limb. So through in in college, I studied business and I studied supply chain manufacturing Mm -hmm. and then a specialty in additive manufacturing. And I was trying to bridge the gap between 3d printing and prosthetics and the sockets. So I came back to to Raleigh and was working in that job and was just spending all my free time learning about additive manufacturing, how to incorporate 3D printing. So I left that IT corporate job 
and started this little consulting business, working with some orthotic prosthetic clinics in the area, implementing 3D printing technologies to create faster, better fitting sockets at a lower rate, at a lower cost. There's a lot of red tape that goes along with that, with insurance and all that sort of stuff. So it wasn't very scalable for me, but it was more of a passion project. I mean, the way you're lighting up right now talking about it sounds like you got involved in something that was a huge correlation to your, to your passion. Absolutely. Well, you know, in sitting in the cubicle, I was like, what am I doing here? Like what? Like I know I have an opportunity to affect change on a level much bigger than myself to a population that needs to be reminded that they're far more capable than they've been told or believe. I love that. And that's when it was just, it was something within me that said, Logan, stop this, go put yourself in orthotic and prosthetic facilities, be the person that a patient sees after they've just lost a limb and they've lost hope or don't know what the future holds, be the person to remind them and show them you can do all of these things. Uh, so that yeah. was the goal that and additive empowering. manufacturing was a way to put me there and, uh, and it did, but the epiphany I had in that environment, unfortunately was most amputations are not like mine. Most amputations are not due to some traumatic injury or illness. It's typically due to chronic disease. It's wow. typically due to diabetes. And I was seeing patient after patient after patient coming in with a partial foot amputation a month later, a below knee amputation a month later, the other foot partial foot amputation. Mm. And it's, it's a shocking statistic that once one leg is amputated due to diabetes, it's a 90% chance the other leg will be amputated. Oh, wow. It's just so sad, which what, what, what you're really hearing is there's no lifestyle style change that happens. Yeah. These individuals assume that they're just destined for this life. The diabetes is the way it's going to be forever. I knew even then, and I wasn't into CrossFit. I didn't know really the, the full understanding of fitness and health and what it could do to prevent that stuff, but I, I had a basic understanding of it. And I had a, an epiphany in that environment where I was like, I am trying to solve a problem after the issue has occurred, I'm trying to fit them for a prosthetic that they'll never wear because they were not going to make the lifestyle changes. They're unaware of what they're doing to themselves to put them in this situation. So that's when the realization was that I need to be an advocate in health and wellness and fitness. For preventative care. Preventative care. And then mindset coaching a little bit to help them understand how to dictate lifestyle to stay away from you know the second amputation. Exactly. Wow. So it started out visiting with the patients and, and relaying education in that way. Yeah, we talk about the sockets. This is how we could fit all this. But really, like, what are you doing at home? What are you eating? What are you drinking? What do you do to get to get some movement in during the day? And these people are very sedentary. I mean, they're the most. So it was it was an incredible experience to realize that's where I needed to go. And then I, I'd known a CrossFit. I'd done some CrossFit workouts in college. Mm-hmm. I was very familiar with it. Yeah. And that's when I was like, all right, I'm going to go. First of all, I need to do it to myself. I need to be all in and see what happens, what transformations I make, what this does to me if I try this CrossFit approach. So I found a local affiliate and started training. Just fully committed at this point. All in. Yeah, all in. I like that. That was just, uh, that's just the way I am with something, anything that I do. I was listening earlier to Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He was kind of talking about his story. Yeah. And, you know, he had a moment when he was finishing his WWE career where, you know, he was dabbling in a few different things. And he said exactly that. In order for you to be successful, to take the leap to the next journey of your life, you need to be all in, yeah. not not straddling the line. Exactly. 
So exactly. That's, that's amazing. And that's, that's clear as day in so many examples in my life and in other people's like, that's, that's what it takes. Mm-hmm. And in this endeavor, uh, that's what I said. And I went into this, I, I hopped around a couple of gyms, checked them out. And I found one that I really just felt comfortable in. And the, uh, the, the manager of it at the time, who's now like a very close friend of mine is, uh, and has a, the gym that I train out, opened his own gym. I walked in and I had already bought my first pair of nanos. I had gone in there and he's like, Oh, you got the CrossFit shoes, huh? I was like, yeah, I don't know. I just, I'm here to, I'm, I'm all in. I'm here to figure it out. And he's like, well, I've never trained anybody with one arm, but like, what's, what's your goal? Like, what are you really trying to get out of this? And, uh, I told him, you know, in day one, my vision was to reshape what we as society think is possible for people with impairments. It wasn't, oh, I want to have the biggest one arm and I want to be the fittest one arm guy on the planet and be shredded and jacked. No, it was none of that. But it was how can I use my body and my experience as a vehicle to tell a story to empower other people. That that's so profound. It was just. I think that's really really dope. I'm. Yeah. I don't know why that's what I wanted, but that was clear as day. Like that was the only thing that mattered. And maybe it was from the experience in the orthotic and prosthetic facility, seeing all these patients and knowing that that's all it takes is a little bit of hope, a little bit of you can do this, Mm -hmm. and these people would do it. Uh, just no one's telling them that. Everyone's yeah. telling them the opposite. I was told the opposite. Yeah. Logan, you won't be able to do this. You probably can't do this. This will be really hard for you to accomplish. I was like, why Why even tell people that? Yeah. What's the benefit of, of filling their head with that stuff? The most successful people in the world are comfortable having uncomfortable conversations. Exactly. And sometimes having that uncomfortable conversation with yourself yeah. is, is the, the breakthrough that you need. Exactly. And um, that has been the mission since day one of CrossFit. I mean, three months in, I went and got my L1. Mm-hmm. Not at all to become a coach, although that ended up being a, an incredible calling for me, but that wasn't the intention. It was, all right, Logan, if you're going to try to do all this stuff with one arm, it'd be great to have a baseline understanding of what the intention is. Yeah. Why is CrossFit being programmed this way? What is a stimulus? What does that mean? Like just the general understanding of CrossFit in the level one. And more importantly, it fit with your ethos of curiosity. Exactly. It's a, yeah, yeah, and as you, yeah, I mean, it sounds like throughout in. this entire story, that's a theme that stands out to me. Yes, a be all in. Yeah, no limits. Yeah, you know, step on and kick out the door. Perceived expectations. Yes, uh, create your own path, and this this general piece of curiosity that you that you so eloquently possess. Curiosity, man. That's I, when I think of that, and I think of Forrest Gump, and I think of running. You know, yeah. and the curiosity is just to continue running because we all know what happens when you stop running. The run's over. Mm -hmm. Your heart rate comes down and you go drink some water, eat some food, you go to sleep, you do, you know, the next day you move on with your life. Mm -hmm. But what happens if you just keep running? Yeah. Like that's curiosity. For sure. And I'm fascinated by that curiosity in any aspect of life. Like what happens if we just do a little bit more and we did that? All right, we're still here. What if we do a little bit more than that? And so it was just, it was fascinating to see what started to unfold when we never became okay with the outcome. It was always like, all right, well then let's do a little bit more. I want to, I want to ask you about that real quickly. So, you know, a lot of our society is so consumed with the mindset associated with outcome based goals, Mm. right? You walk into a CrossFit gym is, Hey, what's the goal, Mm. right? What are your thoughts on, you know, throughout your journey, did you ever have outcome based goals or was it always about who Logan Aldridge could become in the pursuit of that goal? Oh, that's a great question. No, I did. I had outcome-based goals. It was for my own sanity too. You know, it were they were um, encouragement. It was like I had to set really tangible goals in front of myself. 
Because I didn't, you know, it's, I can say all this now, you know, 15 years later, and it sounds like, oh, Logan, he knew, he knew this was the path he was going to go on. But absolutely not. I had no intention of being here, what I'm doing now today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just was trying to just check some boxes to build up the confidence in myself to be the Logan I was before. I was just trying to be the Logan I was before. Mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to become something beyond that punk of a kid, you know. Yeah. I was just, I've experiencing some humbling and enlightening things that made me realize that there's far more to life than the Logan I was before yeah. than trying to be that professional wakeboarder uh, or than, you know, being a professional athlete. There's far more to it. And the outcome based goals quickly created uh, epiphanies that it's not about the outcome at that goal. It's the journey that you learned things you learned on the way there that are really shaping and growing. you. Oh yeah. It's the discomfort you had before you reached the outcome that really shaped you into the next person you're going to become or the next confidence or ability you're going to have to attack the next bigger grandiose goal. Absolutely. And and I think that's one of my goals, you know, in 2020 is, you know, I love highlighting amazing feats and, you know, conquering goals, but in your pursuit of trying to gain the freedoms and to become the, the Logan you were before the injury, did you have any low moments? That's a great question. And I did, and it's important to say I did. Uh, it's easy to say, no, I was just I was just confident and happy the whole time. Yeah. And, and frankly, for the most part, I really was. But there is there was one moment, and it was literally a 30-minute moment. That was it. Mm-hmm. But there was a moment in the hospital where I broke down. I just lost it. I mean, it was, it was, it was overwhelming, the, everything that was going on. And it happened. It was just one night. It was one night after the amputation, sitting. I'm out of ICU. I'm just in the children's ward. My mom's been sleeping on the couch. It's late at night. Uh, we were reading a bunch of care page comments. And, you know, this is kind of before Facebook. So it was like this care page for Logan. And all my friends are writing, you know, so sorry, Logan. We're here for you, here to help and all this. And read all these things and had some tears, just tears of joy reading all these things. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, wow, man, that's amazing. And then after that, an hour later, I think I was like going to the bathroom. And... Uh, and there's a mirror walking in the bathroom and I saw myself and I, and I looked away and then I had to turn back to double take because I saw myself as this figure, you know, mm-hmm. and it was the first time where it really resonated like the severity of this and the permanency of an amputation, obviously. And seeing that figure in the mirror uh, was overwhelming. Uh, it was scary. It mm-hmm. was scary. And I don't know if it's because of all the drugs I was on, but I was like, you are a freak. Like that was in my mind. In that mm-hmm. moment, it was like you are uh, this disabled person. You are who the other Logan walking down the street would have seen and said, oh, that, that person's handicapped. That person's disabled. Mm-hmm. And I was like, now that is you. And that was super hard to realize and uh, come to terms with. Mm-hmm. What advice based on that experience would you give to people in the world going through some challenging times? It's important to grief. Like that's, that's the biggest thing I I like to reiterate. And I think that through all the opportunities I've had and the individuals I've gotten to work with some combat wounded veterans and you know, what PTS does to our mind, like, uh, that's a real, it's very real. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think a huge part of overcoming that is accepting the reality of things and accepting sadness. Mm -hmm. Like, and for me, yes, it was like a 30, it was a 30 minute cry your eyes out sit there with my mom, hugging my mom. Mm-hmm. And at that 30 minutes or whatever it was, I wiped away the tears. And I said, that happened. That's really good that that happened. I never want to go back to that place again. Yeah, 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 That's happened now. Let's put a bow on it. Let's appreciate it. 
Uh, it was important. It's important to grieve. It's extremely important, Mm -hmm. but then you got to move on. Yeah. Then, then that's in the past. That's done. It's over with. Uh, now it's time to own what you can own, you know, control what you can control. And there's no point to dwell in the past or get lost in those emotions. For sure. You got to have them, but then accept it and move on. Yep. You know, I, I feel so honored to, uh, sit here and express emotional vulnerability with you. I really do that. I think that that's a lot of strength, especially in our world, you know, based on kind of your past and your story and your history, what are some of the cool things you're working on now with the adaptive community? Yeah, man. Oh my gosh. You know, I'm always honored to tell my story. And frankly, though, the amount of individuals I've gotten to meet, the other adaptive individuals and stories I've gotten to hear, mine pales insignificance compared to these, these stories. I can't wait to hear some of those. I've met some of the most remarkable individuals. I mean, and and to that, what I was just speaking about, you know, combat wounded veterans, like, are you kidding me? These are literally walking heroes. Yeah. These are heroes in our life that, uh, we don't appreciate in the way that I think we should. Sure. Shout out to all you guys that serve. Thank you so much. Absolutely. We don't, I don't say it enough. None of us do. And, uh, the uh, the praise and recognition is um, it should be better recognized. It should be more more abundant. So I guess my mission is not about Logan, but it's about the empowerment of others. Mm-hmm. The empowerment of others. The way that I've kind of found a way to take that into action is through education. I can train. I can be the fittest one arm man on earth or whatever, and that's fine. But I think we were discussing right before this podcast, like fitness. I don't want fitness to own me. I don't want to be an athlete in fitness. And that is what you see on Instagram. And, you know, it was cool to have a video go viral and to put a barbell over my head that was Mm -hmm. super heavy and uh, to inspire and motivate people in that way. That's awesome. But the bigger intention, my life's purpose is to empower others through education. And the empowerment comes in a realization that they're far more capable than they believe or know. And that starts most tangibly with adaptive training education. So I'm very fortunate to be a part of the Adaptive Training Academy. The Adaptive Training Academy is is really uh, myself, Alex Zirkenbach, Kevin Ogar, and Chris Stoutenberg, us four, uh, over the years and experiences and individuals we've gotten to meet and learn from, have compiled uh, an education-based seminar that teaches physicians, therapists, trainers, uh, athletes alike, how to assess and work with adaptive athletes in an inclusive environment. In other words, how to bridge the gap between, okay, we need to modify the movements. We need to change this stuff to create a stimulus, but we also want you to be a part of a group training environment. We all know the most popular word in CrossFit or in these environments is community. And community is the most important part to fulfillment, to emotional fulfillment. And when it comes to an adaptive athlete with an impairment or an individual with an invisible impairment, something's going on in their life and they're just really down mm-hmm. and out. Community is what saves you. Yep. The fitness is a bonus. Yep. So we're bridging that gap and creating the ultimate accessible and inclusive environment. So that a physical impairment does not at all differentiate you from an able-bodied individual. I love that. The trainer, the, the coach, whoever, you come walking in, you come rolling into that gym. They're not only confident in their ability to train you, but they're excited 
to offer an inclusive environment. And there's no special highlighting. There's no, can you believe he's doing that in a wheelchair? Can you believe he's doing that with one arm? We don't need this extra edification. It's Mm -hmm. just, you're doing what you can do. That guy's doing what he can do. And we're all in here working together to improve ourselves. Yeah, the pursuit of excellence. Absolutely, man. Can you talk briefly about, you know, adapting is not scaling? Yeah, that's a great one. I think that's such a powerful tool to the adaptive training community. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you look at the world of CrossFit. Like RX is something we see a lot of times on whiteboards, doing workouts as prescribed, you Mm -hmm. know. Think about the psychology of that. You know, if, uh, if I can never do an RX workout, am I just never an RX athlete? Yeah. So adapting is finding the same stimulus that's prescribed in that RX, right? And scaling, we all, I mean, you can, you can adapt a workout and scale it Mm -hmm. most definitely, but scaling is due to a limitation and uh, a work capacity issue Mm -hmm. that we can increase the work capacity over time. We have to adapt because there's an impairment, a permanent impairment, and that's never going to change. I'm not going to grow an arm over time and can increase load because I'm growing this arm more because then the adaption doesn't make any sense, right? And I I just was scaling until I grew an arm back. Mm -hmm. That's not going to happen. So the adaptive version is the one that mimics the stimulus of what is prescribed or or what is RX so that you have that same baseline to go after and to standardize for yourself. And yeah, there's scaling, there's modifying, but adapting is, is very different. Yeah. And that's important to reiterate. I, I think it's the psychology so from the psychology it. standpoint for sure that it's not lesser than exactly. you know, it's it's mimicking the stimulus right. in the appropriate way for that individual. Right, right. That's that's a really great thing. Absolutely. And so obviously adaptive training committee, the four of you guys are are, are literally changing the world. Oh, in man. my opinion. It's it's so cool. You know, we're very we're I think we're jaded, you know, because we we live it and we've been doing it for so long. It's always an honor to share this education with others, but I think we forget how impactful it really can be mm-hmm. and how life-changing it can be mm-hmm. to be equipped with these tools uh, and this methodology that we teach. And once we host a seminar, the feedback is always one that god, it hits home. It reminds you, it reminds me why I have the late nights and early mornings yep. and why I dedicate myself to doing this along with a full-time job and, mm-hmm. and figuring out when to do it and how to do it. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's overwhelming and it's stressful for sure, Yeah, but it is absolutely worth it. Yep. it. It is so worth it. And yeah, the global change that it's creating is far greater than the four of us. The people we're empowering that then go back to their community, implement a program, create inclusivity, accessibility, draw individuals who have been sedentary and told their whole life that they're not capable of things come in and you know the most profound example and i really think this hits home for people is when is the um, wheelchair population when Mm -hmm. you look at someone who's bound to a wheelchair spinal cord injury uh, bilateral amputation whatever it may be but just bound to a chair and they are fearful of falling out of that chair because they cannot get back up or they can't get back into their chair. If we train through functional fitness, we train them with the right movement patterns and stimulus to progress them to the ability to not only get out of their chair and get back in, but being able to ambulate across the floor to their chair if it's over there, we have drastically changed the quality of their life. For sure. Forget the gym. We have changed their life forever. Uh, The independence that they have, the confidence that they have, and I know that's, a, that's an extreme example, but that's in every person. That's in every able-bodied person. That's, oh, yeah. that's why we do functional fitness, right? Mm-hmm. It's because of its translation into the world. But that's the most profound one. And when you really realize that, 
you realize we are defying the medical expectations that are placed on people with impairments. Yes. And the important part is we're doing this collaboratively. Mm -hmm. We're doing this with all of the guidance from the medical community. We're not doing this and saying, hey, medical, look at this. You were wrong. We're right. You can CrossFit will yeah, actually make collaboration. you better. No, 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 no. Yeah, it's the big picture. You know, it's okay. This is what you're saying in the medical community. This is what happens in the therapy community, rehabilitation. Now, why does it stop there? Why do we then uh, release them back into life, back into the world, and say, you're equipped now, you're good? No, it needs to continue into training because life's going to keep happening. Things oh, yeah. are going to keep happening, oh, right? Yeah. And it comes back to those three perspectives, right? Life's either, after that, life is going to probably start happening to you mm -hmm. if you don't get to a place where life can happen through you. Yep. And once you start realizing that there's more potential in you, there's more progress, there's more to go, then you create the curiosity within your own mind of what you might be capable of. Mm -hmm. There's no more accepting the expectations of others. That's when you start to realize the abundance and possibility of life happening through you. For sure. Then it becomes this constant cycle of you empower the next, they empower the next, they empower the next person. And, um, and that's the ripple effect that we're getting to see happen and gets me extremely fired up and goose gives me goosebumps. Yeah, me too. Um, because these people, we're not affecting change. It's the people we're, we're sharing this education with who are affecting global change. Yeah. Uh, and that's huge. That's incredibly special. You know, what are some of the things that you're doing with Wheelwad? Yeah, Wheelwad, man. Wheelwad's, uh, I came into CrossFit and I started going to like every local competition in my area. Mm -hmm. I'm a competitive dude. Yeah. That's kind of why I went towards the CrossFit thing because I wasn't lifting with my bros anymore in college. And yeah. I was like, man, I can't just keep going to this Globo gym and like yeah. putting headphones on, not talking to anybody. I was like, <laughs> I need to like go against somebody. I need to like, you know, have somebody push me in, yeah. in workouts. So um, I love the idea of competing, you know, getting ready for game day. So I was just like, oh, I'll sign up for this local comp. And then you have something to work towards, you know, mm -hmm. on that day. And I was doing that. I was like, man, wouldn't it be neat if we could figure out a way to create adaptive CrossFit competitions, yeah. you know, adaptive programming. And it was starting to be done. And Chris Stoutenberg was the originator of Wheelwad back in 2014. Because as a wheelchair athlete, he was trying to, you know, create inclusion and opportunity. There were a few seated athletes out there that he was connected with. And he wanted to be a CrossFit.com. He wanted to give them a workout of the day for them to go do. Uh, I love and that. They were always texting him or email, Chris, how should I do? Here's the .com workout. Here's my gym's workout. What should I do? How should I change this? Yeah. And he was like, all right, I'm getting, this is too many people I'm trying to service. He was like, I'm just going to create this website, wheelwad.com. Go on here. There's a workout every day. Do it. It's already created for seated athletes because you obviously in the name wheel wad is yeah. for seated athletes uh over time um i became friends with chris we were working with uh on a nonprofit called crossroads we were hosting seminars through crossroads adaptive athletic alliance doing education and seminars and we met each other there and i started to realize that he's like a phenomenal programmer. Like the dude yeah. really gets it. Like he programs for his gym, CrossFit industry, a 10 year affiliate, 10 plus oh, wow. year affiliate in Canada in Collingwood, Ontario. He's an OG man. Like he's been the dude himself, Chris, he's a revered wheelchair basketball player, three time Paralympian gold medalist, wow. wheelchair basketball. Like he's a stud. Got a good head and on his shoulders. He's been in a too. chair for like over 20 years. So like wow. he, he understands this life very well. And anyways, he's developed uh, this platform that's all inclusive. I know it gets lost in the name as Wheelwad, but it's everything. It's for any adaptive athlete. Mm -hmm. And it's the programming and competition consulting. So Wadapalooza, you know, this, this, 
incredible event that has an awesome inclusion of adaptive division. That's Wheelwad. Wheelwad is programming and managing and, and controlling uh, that involvement there. So that's large impact. Yeah, absolutely, man. And and that's huge for athletes. You know, I get a lot of messages from other individuals with one arm and just in any sort of impairment asking, you know, how do I get fit like you, Logan? How do I train that way? And I've invented some pieces of equipment that are great and very useful for if you have a similar impairment to me. But Wheelwad is the place where you can go get some programming and immediately start implementing workouts that are designed, tailored for your impairment. We have upper, lower, seated one and two, depending on the level severity of the paralysis or um, the seated athlete, Mm -hmm. and and neuro. So we cover these bases to offer some generalized programming. But then we also, through Chris, because... I mean, he was programming for uh, a uh, an athlete from Venezuela who made it to the CrossFit Games last oh, year. Wow. Yeah, okay. national champ last year, and he was wow. wheelwad athlete. That's so, so like, cool. Yeah, how profound, man! You go to the CrossFit Games, and the coach back there with you know all those elite individuals. Mm-hmm. You've got Chris back there in a wheelchair rolling around. People are like, what is it? He's a coach for one of these athletes. It's like hell yeah, he is, hell man. Yeah. That's super, doesn't matter, man. That's it's inspiring. knowledge between the ears, man. Yep. And the dude's got it. So um, he programs full spectrum, and I wanted to get super fit last year, and so he programmed like I was a games athlete, and I tried to check the boxes every day, but good Lord, not enough hours in the day to do all that <laughs> fitness. But yeah, man, there's that. There's the baseline programming. allows anybody the accessibility to get, get in and get started. There's tailored, customized programming for individuals. Uh, and then the really cool part, you know, the one that really affects a big picture change is the competition uh, implementation. So yeah. we can take, you know, our goal is to take all these sanctional events and have adaptive divisions within them. Yep. We have so much data from all these athletes with these different impairments doing these workouts for so many years that we're able to level the playing field through percentages and multipliers that help dictate, okay, I've got one arm. I'm competing against this guy who has one hand. So he has most of his other arm, but he's just missing, let's say, his wrist and hand. So he has his elbow. Mm -hmm. So there's ways in which... His movements, he can incorporate that side, and he, he well should. You should always, and I, I always say, if you got it, use it. You know, yep. you should always incorporate what you have. Don't mm-hmm. don't ne- neglect this just because it's you know doesn't have a hand on it. For sure. So we want to encourage that, but we also want to level the playing field so that I can still compete against that guy. So through a lot of kind of looking at different numbers and doing different workouts, we've come up with these standardizations that help level the playing field based yep. on percentages of you know, different movements and things like that. It's always a work in progress. It's not perfect. It'll never be perfect. You know, Uh everybody's impairment's different and specific, but we can create these bigger categories and then really take the next step and create a classification process like the Paralympics and follow Uh suit in that way. And yeah, Wheelwad has the potential to become this big powerhouse of inclusion for competitive athletes. Uh So it's very different in the academy or as the academy is driven by education we want to educate and create like longevity and health and inclusion inclusivity mm-hmm. wheelwad is for that straight up athlete you're an yeah. athlete and you want to progress we don't look at impairments we yeah. see everyone as an athlete and we can help take you to the next level through that man i am just all inspired you're, you're doing so many amazing things that are truly impacting the world and directly in alignment with your why and um, I can't help but but bridge and and create a connection between uh, you and Kobe Bryant. You oh, know, man. unfortunately, you know, you know, he was lost this week yeah. in that unfortunate helicopter accident. So sad. Um, 
you know, sending love to his family and, you know, and a shout out to him and, and his daughter, Gigi, and everybody else that was on board. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, that whole concept of Mamba mentality. Yeah. You know, it's easy to talk about it, but you live it. And, you know, that's just a message that I want to be a little bit of a takeaway. You know, the, the discipline to do the right thing when you don't want to bleeds into freedom in all other aspects of life. You know, on that topic, before we wrap things up, you know, what, what, what's something that you want to share with the world? Or maybe, you know, what do you want the world to remember about Logan Aldrich? I, you know, I hope that when I'm on my deathbed, I can look back and, and feel confident that I shared a message that made people realize they were more capable than they believed. I just continue to see it every day. I continue to see it by, you know, uh, a, a seated athlete who's paralyzed right below their chest doing sit-ups. Like, pff, what? That shouldn't be possible. Yep. Uh, but it is. And we live in a world now more than ever where there's an abundance of stories and information and resources out there defying the impossible. And I hope I can be a catalyst to help others defy the impossible in their own life. Uh, and when I'm long gone, I hope that message and the momentum behind that message with what we've done with the academy, and I hope that in 20 years, we don't see a difference between someone walking around with all their limbs, someone with one arm, someone in a wheelchair. We don't see any difference in potential, uh, the individuals, physical, mental, whatever. Uh, I think we live in an ableist world where it's by default, and it's nobody's fault, but by default, we assume someone with an impairment is less capable. Yeah. Uh, I want to shift that mentality and, sh I love that. and, and share that uh, it's all between the ears, and we're all far more capable than we believe. I love that. Your, your mindset and just everything that you stand for and the energy you, puts off, you put off just makes me gravitate towards you. And uh, I'm so thankful and honored to have you on today's oh, Invictus Mindset Podcast. The honor's man. all mine, man. This um, is so cool. Where can people find you? Oh, so you can find me on Instagram. That's probably where I'm most active and most responsive. If you mm -hmm. do want to reach out and you have a question, I respond to every DM. Nice. Promise. I promise. That is very important to me. Uh, I've made some incredible relationships through that. So that is, that is an amazing tool. Um, and that's just last name, first name. Aldridge Logan. Okay. You can always email me too, logan at adaptivetrainingacademy.com. Nice. And yeah, you know, I've got Facebook and all that stuff too. But yeah, those are the best ways to get in touch with me. Uh, and if you have a story to tell, if you are an adaptive athlete doing something incredible, I would love to hear about it. Uh, I would love to help in any way I can. I would love to tell your story. So any listeners that are doing remarkable things, we at the Academy love to edify those stories. And I'm sure Bryce may even want to do the same on this podcast. So For sure. we want to continue to hear them all. Such a pleasure, man. At the end of the day, we are all just a collection of stories. And that's right. You truly inspired me with yours. Oh, thanks, brother. Thanks for listening, guys.